0: Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to open to debate In a pluralist society, individuals and groups each have their own preferences, interests, and goals. Together they compete, cooperate, intersect, and diverge in public and private spaces, shaping the world and how we live together. Like it or not, industry plays a central role in that process and often enters or is drawn into the politics of the day. Beyond advocating for the interests of industry and public policy, businesses may also weigh in on the issues of the day, shaping perceptions, setting the agenda and taking sides in controversies in good faith and in bad. A new book looks to make sense at how businesses engage in politics and with it we ask, what is the new political capitalism? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Joe Zamet Lucia, founder of Radix, a public policy think tank, and author of The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Polarized World. Let's start with the premise on which your book opens. Uh, Business and politics are inseparable, quote unquote. Uh, Now, I want to dig into the question of what you mean when you say politics uh, because there are infinite number of understandings of what that means yes. uh, for the for the purpose of the book what counts as politics
1: okay so you know when 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 people say politics you know too many people turn their nose up because they think of the rather messy sometimes not very seemly process of partisan politics and electoral politics um but that's not what I mean by politics. By politics, I mean the process by which we decide what sort of society we want to live in. That is what the political process is trying to achieve, you know, imperfectly, messily, uh, as is normal in a complex society. Um, but that's the, the the objective of the political process: is what kind of society do we want to live in? Um, and business can't abstract itself from that discussion.
0: And it's, you mentioned partisan and party politics. So there's a formal and an and informal aspect to, to politics, right? I mean, there are the institutions that you suggested, there's, there, there are legislatures, there are partisan parties with, with associations, there are courts, there are lots of things. Uh, and then there's a sort of informal spaces in public. Uh, you talk about the new political. Uh, capitalism, and so you know, politics is inherently bound up not just with the, the formal political process and the informal reality, but the market and industry. Uh, what what's political capitalism?
1: So, so the first thing that we need to sort of accept is that having a capitalist system itself—that is a political decision. Mm-hmm. Not every country has a capitalist system. And not every country shapes that capitalist system in the same way. So those are all in themselves political decisions. Uh, Now, my thesis is that throughout the latter part of the 20th century, say 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe early 2000s, the the window of political debate was pretty narrow. Communism had collapsed, we'd convinced ourselves that liberal democracy had won the battle of ideas. Um, the kind of what became to be called broadly the neoliberal economic philosophy, political philosophy of political economy, had kind of become pretty widely accepted, uh, both by center-right and center-left. Um, so that the window of political ideas was really pretty narrow. Uh, And that made for a pretty stable political environment. And business and commerce could therefore be allowed just to get on and focus on making money. Um, Well, that's all been blown to smithereens. Now the window of political ideas is wide open. You know, the second largest economy in the world is an authoritarian regime uh we have a revanchist russia that has decided that we should go back to the might is right idea that's at the geopolitical level Uh, at the local level we're seeing increasing polarization Uh, we're seeing you know political ideas become very deep identity issues um the, the 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 kind of temperature of political debate has increased so so suddenly politics has become center stage again. And what that means is that commerce and business has to operate in a fundamentally different political context,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, which means that political issues drive more and more the actions of business. Whereas in the past, you know, they were just allowed to get on with it because there wasn't much political debate. Now there is. And business is embroiled in that and cannot abstract itself from it. So what I mean by political capitalism is a capitalist system where political ideas and the battle of political ideas actually drives the structure of that capitalist system and increasingly drives uh, decisions that were previously taken on purely commercial grounds.
0: And so, you know, business has always been political in the sense that there's always been industry interests and, and class interests, and those folks either directly or through associations or through connections with politicians and so on lobby for, for public policy. And so, there's, there's always been a political aspect to it, insofar as, as industry seeks to shape the environment in ways that are favorable to it. But what I'm hearing you speak about is something bigger, a little more, more meta, uh, in a sense, a struggle for the fundamental rules of the game across the world that that strikes me as as up for debate in a way that they weren't perhaps you know in the in the mid 1990s is, is that the sense I'm getting
1: yes that, that's absolutely right and there's more to it than that i think um two two aspects one is that you rightly say about business lobbying and influencing um and there are two aspects to that one is that the power the relative power the second of share of voice if you like that business has in that debate is today much more diluted so the days of kind of backroom deals in smoke-filled rooms are more or less over we now have a world of social media where almost everything is transparent where you never know where your secret internal documents are going to appear on some wikileaks or somewhere else Uh, we have a very active and increasingly powerful civil society so lots more people now have the power to influence the governance process so that the relative power that business has has in my opinion decreased Um, The second element is that traditionally business has got involved in the political arena through its uh, influence processes by lobbying for its own self-interest, which is fine, every organization is interested in its own self-interest, but that is becoming much more difficult now because because of the increased transparency that I uh, mentioned, but also because now there is an expectation that lobbying selfishly for one's own narrow commercial self-interest is no longer something that society easily accepts. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very much, you know, the expectation now is if you're going to influence government, then you should do it in the public interest. So that is also a change in terms of how business navigates this kind of maze.
0: So the I mean, I think that that's an important point. It is in a sense a new front and, and a return to, in fact, I mean an old idea that that in, in a pluralist society, I mean everyone has their own interests, but there is also a, a public interest. You don't just talk about political capital uh, capitalism though you also talk about political consumerism. So if on the one hand we have a particular relationship of the of industry to the politics of the day, we also have a consumer relationship to industry and to the politics of the day. What's, what's political consumerism?
1: So, so I think we're seeing, and this is still in its infancy, uh, but I think we're seeing an increasing number of people making purchasing decisions on the basis of their political views. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they would purchase something that they believe is sustainable. Uh, or they would not purchase something that they think was made using slave labor in the Far East. Uh, So so these are people's political opinions and political views that are suddenly driving their purchasing decisions. And one of the points I made in, in, in the book is that know how do you deal with this well one way to deal with it is to abandon the term consumer uh, because consumer when we describe people as consumers it kind of implies that the only value of these human beings to the world is how much they can consume Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know that's what they are consumers well actually people are citizens (laughs) and -hmm. they have broader interests than just consuming Um, so if business starts to think of their customers as citizens what would my customers want when they're behaving as citizens as opposed to what they want if they're behaving as mere consumers that gives you a per, a, a very different perspective on what your market is and 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 who you are trying to appeal to it also gives you a much broader set of tools to appeal to these groups um and also you're you know that's kind of not a term I like, but anyway, um, the, the kind of market segmentation that you would do changes because suddenly you're segmenting your market according to political views and political preferences, uh, not just, you know, as to whether some people like the color orange and others like the color, color blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so all this changes the context within which business is operating, and therefore changes what business needs to do in order to continue to be successful.
0: I mean, does this potentially have a, a polarizing effect? Because, I mean, one, one thing we find over and over again is that we do segment ourselves. I and mean, we are often segmented by those who have an interest in segmenting us. I mean, political parties, for instance, do this. Uh, well, the sports teams do this, as to give a more banal example um but we're fundamentally sort of relational and community based uh, beings that find communities to to relate to uh, you know if if we do try to sort of collapse the distinction into uh, you know consumers into and citizens into one sort of thing well we're all fundamentally citizens we find it resegmented then into well citizens who care about x citizens who care about y uh, citizens who want to back industry who support our interests over here and go back a different industry that supports our interests over there um, now in a, in a particularly toxic political environment which we're seeing increasingly so is there a risk that it drives a sort of toxic polarization
1: well i i think that again we need to sort of pass that a little bit so there's there's a difference between creating products and services that appeal to different groups of the population different mm-hmm. tribes, shall we call them. Um, um, and business has always done that. I mean, no no business ever launched a product that's going to appeal to the whole population. No. So, so they've always segmented the market. They've always appealed to a particular group of a population. The only thing I'm saying is that these days, there's an additional layer that one has to take into account when looking at the markets that you're targeting um the issue of polarization uh what's what's the role of business in that well there are two two aspects one is that devising products and services that appeal to a certain group of people is not polarizing particularly what might get polarizing is if business succumbs to activist pressure to become activists about an issue. So let's take the United States as an example, you know, uh, your your next door neighbor. Um, With the repeal of Roe versus Wade, there have been a number of activists who have been pressuring companies to come out publicly supporting one or other of those positions. Now, that debate is very difficult because both sides of this debate feel that they have morals and ethics on their side Uh, now to my mind it's unwise for businesses to become activists in that it's none it's you know they're not elected to run the country or make these decisions Uh, but what is important is that they realize that within their stakeholder group, be it employees, customers, or whatever, there are people who legitimately hold positions on opposite sides of this argument. And the question, the political question, as opposed to the moral question, which is unresolvable, the political question is, you know, how do I behave? How do I go forward? How do I communicate when I know that my stakeholder group contains people on both sides of this you know very fiery debate and that's a different way of thinking that's a political way of thinking which a lot of businesses have not previously had to develop the skills to do.
0: Uh, do they not have a have a role to play though in deciding uh, what, so, what sort of society they want to live in? I mean I know that for instance businesses have in the United States around Roe, for instance, have indicated a preference by saying, well, here's what we're going to do for our employees, which to me is is perhaps different than expressly taking a side and saying, well, we disagree or we agree with the, the decision. But they say, well, notwithstanding the decision, we're going to make sure that our, our employees have access to the health care they need. Is that a different sort of thing?
1: That, that to me is a different sort of thing, you know, I think that you, you, we, you know, businesses are operating within this political framework, and they have to make decisions, they can't avoid making decisions on how they're going to run their organization, given this political framework. So it's perfectly reasonable for them to make have to make decisions about what kind of healthcare plans they're going to offer, and whether it include this, that and the other, that is an operational decision. That uh, they have to make. Uh, It's not going to please everybody, that's a given, uh, but they have to navigate that and they have to couch it and present it in a way that is politically sensitive to all sides of the argument. That's one element. But the second element is if businesses decide to go further and to become activists. Uh, which is quite different, which is to say, I am pro or against termination of pregnancy. And I'm going to take a stand on that. I'm going to make uh, political contributions on the basis of that. I'm going to shout from the rooftops that I stand for this and the other. Now, individual businesses may choose to do that. But all I'm saying is that's a very different and much bigger step for an organization to take.
0: Right. Would you say there are um, hard lines though, where you would expect that that businesses would would say, okay, well, uh, on this issue, on this question, it is a moral imperative and indeed perhaps even a business imperative as well to take a public stand because it is so fundamental to the nature of how we live together and the values that we hold in, say, a liberal liberal democratic society, that we have no choice. And I'm thinking, for instance, of, say, extremist ideologies and the role that they're increasingly play uh, in political society, the rise of or the re-rise of fascists, Nazis, and so on and so forth. I mean, um, can a business, for instance, both morally and operationally afford to stand by when you for instance see a far-right prime minister or president emerge
1: yes so so these are very difficult decisions um and traditionally business has wanted to kept, keep out of all of this stuff <clears throat> because it's a no-win situation uh increasingly it's becoming more difficult to abstain and you're under pressure from all sorts of sides But again it depends on how you do it so two things one is beware of excessive moralizing because when a business goes out and says these are my values you know that's a good thing from from one side maybe um but from the other side it's an open invitation to every activist in the world to troll through what you're doing in your organization to show that you're not living by your values. And none of us is perfect enough that we can stand up to that sort of scrutiny. So so these things have to be handled with care. There is a different model, which is to make certain political positions actually part of your brand equity. Mm -hmm. So take an organization like Patagonia that was set up on the basis of environmental activism. That's why the... that's why the organization exists. It's part of its brand, it's right in its DNA, and everything it does is shaped by that, as a result of which its customer base is, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, people who are interested in that, who support Uh, environmental activism, who support, who see the environment as something important. So they've created, if you like, a political brand, a brand that has a very strong position in one particular uh, political uh, issue. Now, that might mean that people who don't care a damn about the environment will never buy a Patagonia jacket. That's Mm -hmm. fine. But I don't think that by doing so, they are increasing polarization. What they're doing is they're saying, this is, this is one of the layers of my brand meaning. Um, and and, yeah. and that, that can work if it's well integrated, like Patagonia's is, into what your brand stands for and what your company stands for. But to have a company that doesn't have that sort of thing suddenly decide to wade into this political issue or that political issue which has nothing to do with its brand equity or brand identity, then that's dangerous ground to be treading on. Uh,
0: how much of this is ultimately about competence? Um, because when you were giving your answer, I was sort of thinking to myself that, and you opened the book with sort of the suggestion, um, You know, sometimes businesses just simply don't know what they're doing in that space. I mean, they might have values, they might have preferences, um, but they just simply don't know how to navigate it. I mean, you one of the yes. quotations with which you open a chapter is sort of basically like, uh, is a CEO saying, well, we don't know how how political thinking works, no. <laughs> uh, which which I, I mean, in a sense, makes good sense. I mean, everyone has their core competencies, but you, you, you watch brands weigh into political issues, perhaps, by the way, incidentally, um, cynically. Right, there's yeah, also that maybe. element too, um, and you sort of say, well, just even from a from a common sense perspective, it looks like they have no, simply no idea what they're doing, and and, and sometimes that yes. strikes me as well. That's probably because they don't.
1: Right, and 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 that's and I, I, you know I I agree with you, and I I think that's not surprising, because you know the generation of political leaders that we have today, um have never needed to, this has not been an issue. Um, right. <clears throat> so, so you know, it's perfectly reasonable that it'll take time to build these competencies. Um, you know, when I work with companies, that's what I do. I, I help them understand political thinking and work out, you know, how do they set up a governance processes that allows them to build these skills. Um, it's not easy because if you've been brought up, you know, if you've got your Harvard MBA and you've been brought up in you know to understand you know, balance sheets and profit and loss accounts and, and all these things, you're very competent in that arena. Um, but you've never had to deal with these, you know rather soft, chaotic, you know, in, through some lenses, irrational behaviours um, that you find irritating. Mm-hmm. So so companies have to build these competencies. And it's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> um, and those companies that build them better and more quickly will move ahead of the rest. And that's the nature of competition.
0: I mean, is it ultimately... I, I don't want to separate it into two neat groups, but there are cynical and less cynical endeavors. I mean, Patagonia's endeavor is plainly not cynical and their and their business decisions uh, have been consistent with their values as stated by day one from day one. And so that's a great example because it's plainly not cynical. At other times, you see interventions that are sort of Johnny come lately and and light and, and they don't see substantive, and those do look cynical. I mean, does it, it now, make it presumably it makes a moral difference. Does it make an operational difference whether or not these are cynical mm-hmm. interventions?
1: Yes, but I, I never like to ascribe motivation. I only like to look at what people are doing. Right, um,
0: right. it's the but... civilizing force of hypocrisy, right? Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Um, but 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 you know the reality is that when you do things and say things without any basis, you're found out. you know know, people are not fools so you might get away with it for a month you might get away with it for a year but at the end of the day you're found out Mm -hmm. um so okay you know a deliberately cynical marketing campaign that dives that 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 sort of decides to ride a particular horse because it's fashionable today you know might be fine for the for the marketing manager who is evaluated on next quarter's earnings, um, on next quarter's sales, but it's not fine for the CEO who has to steward this company over the next five or ten years. Right. Um, so you know, yes, people will do greenwashing. I mean, you know, seventy one percent of executives interviewed said that they that their company indulges in greenwashing. Uh, everybody knows it. Um, but that, that's not a lasting strategy uh, that might be something that that, you know, you slip into or that is your your response to an increasingly complex, rapidly moving world. And you don't know what else to do. And that's, you know, to an extent, fine. But in the long term, you just have to build the skills and pretending doesn't get you very far, not for very long.
0: I want to t- take the view of the activist side for a second and, and ask the, the sort of corollary. Do you even want businesses um, taking these activist stances from, from the activist side? Because there are plenty of people who do. I mean, as you say, people will say, well, you know, what side are you on? I don't want to support you if you're not on my side. Uh, there there are people who also say, well, I just quite simply don't want industry as an ally. Uh, You know, our interests, maybe it's because they fundamentally diverge their interests. Maybe it's because they don't trust them. could be a number of different things. Um, I I mean, do you think there's something there?
1: Yes. I mean, there are, you know, the good thing is that we still, you and I still live in relatively pluralist societies. So different people will make different (laughs) decisions. Different different people will make different decisions. And that's great because that's what creates a diversity in the market. and, And that's how things move forward. Um, So some activists will say, I don't want industry on my side because they're dirty and whatever, they're not not trusted, whatever the reason is. That's fine. Others will take a different view. Um, But it's also worth looking at the activist from an industry perspective and understanding two things about activists. Uh, One is that it's very important to understand them. To understand where they're coming from and to understand their points of view because that is an important element to feed into your eventual decision making where it becomes dangerous is to start being led by the nose by activists uh, because you're then led down a path that may not be good for the business And also, one has to realize that the very nature of activism, the kind of personality of people who become activists, is that they can never be satisfied. Um, You know, whatever you do is never going to be enough. Uh, So satisfying activists and being led by the nose by activists is not a good strategy for companies. Understanding activists, understanding where they're coming from, taking their point of view seriously and then feeding that into your multi-stakeholder decision-making process, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, incidentally, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the, it, it's, a, it's a fairly good division of labor. I mean, I would say without the activists doing that pushing, without the, with them being satisfied, then, then you run the risk of, of a kind of complacency. Um, but as you note, know, if businesses are going to try to chase them around, they're going to they're going to tire themselves out pretty quickly. I mean, it's but it's meant to be a sort of uh, agonistic relationship, isn't it? I mean, there should be some tension between those those yes. two, right? I mean, that's part yeah. of the the pluralism that makes
1: absolutely. I if work. you take if you take McDonald's as an example, you know, McDonald's is a a great company to look at in these contexts, even though McDonald's is kind of the company that every snob likes to hate um but... i
0: incidentally i like to like them i have to say <laughs> yes. i mean even, it, it's it it puts its intention with my politics but I, I would never fail to admit to being a, a bit of a fan
1: <laughs> yeah so you know before environmental issues were fashionable mcdonald's was engaging with environmental activists about its mm-hmm. packaging and you know how to deal with the vast amount of waste in packaging that was being generated by all these stores, all these restaurants, whatever. Um, So they were engaging, and they had, you know, very clear terms of reference that they want to reduce this stuff, they want to reduce the amount of waste, they want to reduce the amount of garbage that's produced, but within certain parameters, you know, in terms of its effect on profitability its effect on this that and the other and they went into an engagement process um, to work together with some activists but then they reached their own decisions having taken <clears throat> activists for it. and they did the same thing with uh, animal welfare so so that's you know a good process <laughs> uh, and there's nothing to stop every company engaging in these good processes. They just have to have the skills to do it and the mindset of how to engage in these processes without allowing yourself to be led by the nose.
0: Right. In in the last 10 minutes or so, I want to close out on on a sort of case study and and meta question, which is what to make of climate. Um, Mm. is simultaneously an activist cause, a public policy challenge, and an operational, uh, business operational concern, because it's not just an interest in which activists operate, but it's a fundamental threat to to industry. Um, I've noted that, you know, as others have others, that the insurance yes. industry is particularly forward thinking <laughs> on climate change uh, yes. for reasons that people can guess hard to underwrite things when you can't afford if you have to you know pay out every every six months for once in a thousand year floods um you know are are there moments such as climate change where interests align in such a way that you can and should take a side you know pretty much no matter what
1: so so again climate change is more complicated than it might seem for various reasons one is that although you and I may agree that climate change is important and that we need to do something about it the politics of climate change has changed right in that in that climate change has now become an identity issue um if I'm of a certain political color I take against anything to do with climate change um it's it's in in, in kind of political science terms it's being converted from a valence issue where everybody agrees that we have to do something about it although we might disagree on what to do to a positional issue where you know if i'm of a certain identity then i take against climate change right so the politics of climate change has changed and it's become very difficult um the other issue is that there are different sorts of businesses so you mentioned the insurance industry And quite rightly, they take a long term view, they have evaluated their risks, and they have taken certain decisions, at least some of them have. But there are other businesses out there whose business model is to make money in the very short term. Right. So, you know, if you've invested in fossil fuel companies over these last couple of years, you've made a ton of money. Um, So... So it depends on your business model and what you're trying to do. You know, leaving the moral question aside, um, it's 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 you know, different different companies have different business models and they're trying to achieve different things. So I I don't think there is unity uh where everybody agrees on everything around climate change. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, I think I think there's now, if you like, to some extent more polarization and uh than than maybe there was. And uh on the other side, because people are taking action on climate change, that has opened up commercial opportunities for people who want to make money in another way, like by supporting fossil fuel projects. Right. Uh, so, so you know, it's a very, it's it's a very, again, very pluralistic, very, you know, lots of different organizations, individuals, uh, institutions, with different interests over different time periods.
0: I, I, I know, I said we're going to close on climate change, but I've got one more question because I just realized I haven't, we haven't really. Substantively gotten into so- social media, and I, we simply have to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I mean, because it is—it is absolutely just a giant trap waiting for for companies to walk into it, right? I mean, it 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 really is one of the, it, you know. It is live by the sword, die by the sword, because you have seen some remarkably successful uh campaigns and some some let's say less successful campaigns i don't know incidentally if they actually translate into increased sales or better bottom line goodwill on the on the balance sheet or not but um mm-hmm. what do you make of the of the this or as foucault would say it's not good or bad it's potentially dangerous i mean what, what do you make of social media and, and how it relates yeah. to to this
1: so so you know like everything you know like like nuclear technology um oh, yeah. social media social media has its positives and its negatives um you know it's got positives because it's given lots of people a voice that previously they didn't have a voice um so it's contributed to if you like again a more pluralistic sharing of views uh and and that that must be a good thing um, now, we all know the issues of, you know, you get locked in your own social media bubble, you only listen to things that you agree with, and, and th- those are algorithmic issues that need to be resolved. Um, but I think the one thing I would say about social media companies is that, and I say this in the book in with regards to Facebook, or it's now called Meta since I published the book, um, that, you know, those companies are now political corporations. They're not technology companies because you and I don't give a damn about what technology they're using. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I don't care what what kind of computers they use or what kind of coding they do. What you and I care about is what is their political impact. Um, You know, through their algorithms and through how they make choices, they can influence, and they do, influence our political choices and our political landscapes. So these companies are purely political institutions, um, and we have to look at them like that. Uh, So, you know, how we regulate them, how we decide eventually what sort of role we want them to play in our lives and how much rope we give them and how much we take away, all these things are very important political decisions. So these organizations are political corporations. They're not technology companies because the technology doesn't matter whether it's this or that. What matters is what political impact are they having in the world? Uh, So we should look at them in that way. Uh, And of course, everybody, just like they do for media, I'm sure you write for The Washington Post. I'm sure you've come across, you've you've been um, embroiled in this everybody is going to, say, each side of the political argument is going to say they're biased against me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, and to some extent, if all the sides are complaining about that, you're probably doing the right job. Um, but, but you know, it, it, so, so it's their political impact that matters, uh, not their technology or anything else. And it's a new thing. Uh, it's got its upsides, it's got its downsides, And we still have to learn as a society how to deal with it from a a company point of view. You know, I remember chatting to marketing executives in the past who came came out with, oh, well, this is just a new communication channel and Mm -hmm. we need to learn how to use it. Well, it isn't just a new communication channel. Uh, This is a revolution that has a huge impact on the whole socio-political environment that we live in, uh, and has a huge impact, therefore, on the role of corporations in that. This is a a revolution as big as the invention of the printing press, Mm -hmm. which essentially changed the world. Um, And that's how we need to look at it, not as yet another communication channel and how many advertising dollars should I be spending on this, as opposed to putting, uh, an ad in vogue magazine.
0: Well, I can't, I can't think of a of a better point on which to close than than vogue magazine. I guess. And well no, the social media point is a great uh, is a great one on which to close because I, I think the processing of social media um, is is a world historical event. I mean, we wake up we're recording here on on Monday, October 3rd and I wake up to the Russian embassy uh, tweeting photos of, of uh, nuclear weapons being used. Um, that I, who would have thought 20 years ago that we'd be watching um, a nuclear war standoff on Twitter?
1: Yeah, exactly. I, um, I mean, before it was CNN. During the Iraq war, it was CNN. Now it's Twitter.
0: Now it's Twitter. Uh, God help us. I, yes. <laughs> well, that brings us to time. My first thanks is to you for joining me. This was a great conversation. I enjoyed it very much.
1: Thanks very much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. And as
0: always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarr who make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. And to everyone listening, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here in two weeks.